Welcome to Liturgy and Lawning, an eight-week limited series podcast about the church and the COVID-19 pandemic. We'll begin each episode with a question and invite each of our participants to introduce themselves and answer the question in turn, although this morning the question will be based on a poem, which Jane is going to read, and then she will ask the question, because that will help the question make sense. So... Mm. Uh, Jane, why don't you go ahead and jump right in and read our poem for us? Okay. So we've been talking a lot about this on this podcast, but I think part of dealing with this season of um, living through COVID-19 is that in many ways, our familiar spiritual practices have been taken away, taken away, and perhaps new ones are emerging. And I think that trying to make sense of that maybe the first thing we notice is that there's a crack that something's missing or different um, before we can even name what we should do or where we're going or what's emerging. Um, So I have been coming back to this poem the last few weeks. It's just sort of been a, a mantra that has kept coming into my mind, certain words or phrases from it. And I thought I would share it with you all today and see if it resonated with you. So it's, from a poet whose name is Pedro Toma. I hope I pronounce his name correctly. Um, and the poem is entitled God is the Fracture. And this is how it goes. I used to need the, to know the end of every story. But these days, I only need the start to get me going. God is the crack where the story begins. We are the crack where the story gets interesting. We are the choice of where to begin, the person going out, the stranger coming in. God is the fracture and the ache in your voice. God is the story flavored with choice. God is the pillar of salt full of pity, accusing God for the sulfurous city. God is the woman who bleeds and who touches We are the story of courage or blushes. God is the story of whatever works. God is the twist at the end and the quirks. We are the start and we are the center. We are the characters, narrators, inventors. God is the bit that we can't explain. Maybe the healing, maybe the pain. We are the bit that God can't explain. Maybe the harmony, maybe the strain. God is the plot, and we are the writers, the story of winners and the story of fighters, the story of love and the story of rupture, the story of stories, the story without structure. So I don't know, maybe there's a line in that poem that really speaks to you today or connects with some of the questions you've been asking or or reflecting on. Maybe the question as we check in is just what is different or what is missing? What's the crack? Um, And just taking the time to kind of notice where we're experiencing that right now. Um, So I'm wondering if anyone feels called (laughs) to answer that. It might take a minute just to think about where we are right now and what's happening, but the piece that sticks out to me is the piece of God being the story of whatever works. Um, because, <laughs> so, okay. So the background on this is, and I tell it to everyone and, um, I tell it to everyone and it doesn't always seem like relevant information, I think. Um, but it is as much, it informs as much culturally as, country of origin does. I'm the daughter of two Marines. Um, and so, and my mom and both parents were deployed at different times. And so my mom would come back and she would unpack her, her footlocker and it would have things that she referred to as like valuable string and (laughs) other things like that. And, and so I have this family legacy of needing to be adaptable and resourceful And this is a time in the church when we need to do those things. This needs to be the story of whatever works. And I think that people um, who are really struggling um, have beautiful things that they are 
holding fast to, but that they really can't access right now. Um, and, and whatever works is often not pretty. Um, it's not shiny, it's not elegant, um, but it works. And that's, that's a little bit where we are. It's not elegant right now. We're not in our beautiful sanctuaries. No one's, um, okay. Cause people are maybe chanting, but it doesn't sound the same, right? Recorded chanting does not sound the same. So, um, I'm embracing this God being the story of whatever works. And for me, that's a comfortable way to be in an uncomfortable place. What about you, Carl? Huh. That is so, well, I'm just reflecting on what Di said, which is so optimistic and um, wonderful to hear. Um, I, I think I've been kind of, realizing what is what is missing or what has been lost and that is making me that is the tension that is opening wide the story maybe in some ways uh the first thing i thought of was peripheral vision which is a weird thing to think of but jane you and i were talking about this a little yesterday like i have found um when trying to do church online particularly through zoom whether it's meetings or gatherings or prayer i find i'm having more and more trouble looking at the screen and um, I think it's because I have no peripheral knowledge of people, you know, like it's all just the face that is prevent- presented only in one angle, always just straight ahead, um, always two-dimensional. And it's making me realize how important in some ways all those little subtle cues to the people who are around you and what they're feeling and you know, even what their identity is by the way that they, their body moves or, um they make little gestures. Like all those um, are really pretty absent now. And so that is, that is definitely one of the, one of the cracks that's going to, you know, open things wide because at first I was thinking, Oh, we come back to do church and we're not singing. That'll be terrible. And now I'm like, yeah, but we'll get to see each other out of the corner of our eyes, right? And maybe we can celebrate that. How about you, Jane? Yeah, both of what you say, I think, rings true. I have often said that I have a high threshold for chaos and that that's allowed me to do creative ministry over these years is that I don't get super anxious in moments like this. And so I, I love what you shared, Di, um, of whatever works. And sometimes that's just where we're called to be. Um, I think the line from the poem that really struck me today, and I've been noodling this poem for a while now, so there's different pieces on different days, but I think it's this, God is the fracture and the ache in your voice. Um, and I think that that connects a little with what you were sharing, Carl, I think for me, it's this sense of like lacking emotional connection with people. And that I think that this online presence, that's what it feels like is that there's just not space to like, even notice when someone tears up or when, you know, there, there's like a break in their voice, which I think you would feel viscerally when you were in the room with someone, even if you couldn't see their face, you would feel it. And I think it's that sense of like sharing, I don't know, it sounds kind of like new agey, but there's like an energy, a like physical energy um, of other human beings that I find to be really missing. And yeah, there's a part of me that has, there was one moment where I said, I don't need to go back to church yet. It feels too dangerous or something. And, And yet something about this past week just made me realize like there is something about physical presence with one another, even if we do have to stand six feet apart, that maybe is so deeply needed from our, like in our just humanity. Um, so I think that's, that's the piece that I'm feeling is missing just physical, like the physicality and the embodiment of being with other people. Um, and I don't know how we're going to fill that exactly now, but I do know that I'm, I definitely have a feeling about that. Well, you know, I think that this is a reminder that we're animals, you know, (laughs) and in a way it's, it's a reminder to celebrate that created nature. um, You were talking about tears and I was thinking, I wonder how we know that, you know, if you don't see somebody and you don't hear their voice, can you pick up on even subtle 
shifts in like the humidity, uh, you know, surrounding somebody in any given moment. And I bet that we can without even knowing it. Right. Like we are, we are animals. <laughs> and, um, and so I, I'm not sure if we, if we celebrate that enough, I don't know if we state that clearly enough in our worship, you know, as we talk about the created world to say, thank you, God, for these myriad senses that let me know all these things that my mind otherwise cannot comprehend. Um, when I was taking yoga teacher training, there was a lot of conversation about like the magnetic field around us, like our auras. Mm -hmm. And I remember talking to my husband at one point and being like, is that like real? Do we like think that there really is an aura? And he joking, was like, yeah, I have like a 10 foot aura. And, um, you know, he's like, I just want to walk into a room. People just feel it. But the more I thought about it, I'm like, if planets can have magnetic fields and like organisms of all kinds can, how is it that human beings don't, I mean, how have we like somehow convinced ourselves that we don't? Um, and so there is a sense that we know things within a certain span around us that we couldn't know otherwise. Um, and so anyway, but I just, I, I keep coming back to that and being like, I think this is true, even if everyone else is going to say I'm nuts. I can tell you from Magic School Bus that even trees communicate with each other. <laughs> <laughs> and, <you know. laughs> uh, and, and the dancer friend I have calls it the kinesthetic sphere. You know, so this idea that we have, you know, as we flail around in the world with these bodies of ours, we define certain spaces, which our bodies, which we give our bodies permission to occupy. And, and we also subtly signal to other people that we are taking that space. <laughs> and, and that's what is a kinesthetic sphere. And it's like the way fish know to swim together in schools. They have that sense of the movement around them. Yeah. So I think all living beings do, maybe non-living beings do too, but um, there, there is just a sense that that's the thing that's most missing in this virtual world that we find ourselves in. Um, so someone said to me the other day that they realized that this was not just a temporary crisis. I think we all entered this and we were like, oh, it'll be two weeks or a month. And then we're going to find our way back to this old world. Um, and they said, this is actually probably more like a chronic illness. It's not just going to go away and be a temporary thing. We all lived through once upon a time. Um, and it makes me realize that we're all learning to experience God and community, both as individuals and as churches. And it's this really sort of crazy transformative time that we're going through where we're having to rethink all the things we knew. So in the context of worship, Carla and I, you and I were talking about this. We're reimagining what we sometimes refer to as the horizontal and vertical axis, the way that God shows up both in transcendent ways, sort of from the divine holy world beyond us. And then also in imminent ways, like right next to us um, in our very bodies and in our relationships with one another and the presence of one another. Um, and I think we'd come to expect that God would show up in these things like music that we mentioned earlier or movement or communion. Um, but as we realize that communal singing is sort of a dangerous proposition, as is perhaps sharing in the Eucharistic elements, um, that some of the primary ways we experience God have been taken away. And I think most people of faith I know are feeling the void of communal song and ritual in our lives. But perhaps that's also happening in our own personal prayer life. There's this sort of transformation that's happening and I know I've been sensing that I have to trust God a lot more. Like it's less about what I do or don't do and more about trusting that God will show up and pay it. And then I'm just, my work is just to pay attention. And I, obviously that's always been true, right? Like that's not just now true. That was true before. It's just that I thought I had more control over the ways that God shows up, even if I would have said that that wasn't true. Um, and certainly as clergy, I think there's something about releasing our hold on being able to offer God's presence to another. I hear a lot of clergy colleagues wrestling with that, missing the Eucharist. And I think there is a genuine longing for God's real presence in the bread and wine. But I also wonder about missing the role that clergy have in that experience and having to trust that God's going to keep showing up, if not in the Eucharist, but in all kinds of ways in every, people's everyday lives.
um, trusting that God's going to show up in nature and contemplative prayer, art, in their families, in the relationships that happen kind of outside of what we traditionally call church. And I don't know if anyone saw it, but there was this um, quote from uh, the infamous Nadia Boltz Weber um, that people were posting yesterday. And I'll just share it with you. She says, I do not know when we can gather again in worship, Lord. So for now, I just ask that when I sing along in my kitchen to each song on Stevie Wonder's songs in the Key of Life album, that it be counted as praise. And that when I read the news and my heart tightens in my chest, that it may be counted as a curie. And that when my eyes brighten in a smile beyond my mask, as I think the cashier may be counted as passing the peace. And that when I water my plants and wash my dishes and take a shower, it may be counted as remembering my baptism. And that when the tears come and my shoulders shake and my breathing falters, it may be counted as prayer. And when I stumble upon a Tabitha Brown video and hear her grace and love of you, may it be counted as hearing a homily. And that as I sit in that table in my apartment and eat one more homemade meal slowly, joyfully, with nothing else demanding my time or attention, may it be counted as communion. Hmm. And so I guess I'm just wondering how as churches do we shift from being sort of a purveyor of religious goods and services to being the host of all of these kinds of spiritual experiences, this kind of breadth of ways that spirit is showing up. Um, I don't know. Those are some of the kind of things I'm pondering. Like how do we make meaning together of this world that we find ourselves in which is certainly not devoid of god it's just devoid of the rituals and ways in which we had come to trust we could encounter god to call it a frustration would be too strong but i have long wanted to nudge clergy not outside of the building just in their role as priests but I have wanted to nudge them into community beyond their roles as priests. And so I'm wondering um, where you might be finding yourselves in new communities right now, where God is moving, where you are not necessarily leading that community or being the primary pointer towards God's movement. Because I know that I am seeing, I am definitely finding new community. I am, I feel very lucky to have been bringing together a new community. Um, and then just today, I've, I've been thinking this week that this is the first Ramadan that I haven't shared iftar with anyone. Mm. Um, and a family that I met a few years ago, but don't talk to regularly emailed me this morning and said, could we drop off bread and soup? Because it is Ramadan and we would like to share iftar with you and we can't. Um, and so, right, clearly as a Christian, um, that is not community that I am orchestrating, but it is a place where I have been able to witness holiness um, in this funny little way. Like I might usually be part of an iftar, but it wouldn't be brought to me. Um, and so I'm wondering what you're learning about God in the world and not about God in your world right now. Yeah, that's, Di, I find that such a challenging question in part because, um, I, you know, I went through a three-year period where I tried very deliberately to find other communities outside of the church that, one, I could, I could name God's participation in in that way, but also that I felt that I, I felt at home in. Um, and so I tried three or four different places and, um, and, you know, it was part of those communities for a year or two years. Um, and they just, they, they were full of wonderful people who did, um, wonderful things together. And yet they weren't interested in talking about God. And so I knew ultimately they were not the community for me. <laughs> so, but what you're asking is a different question. You're asking like, can, can I name what they did that was good and gracious and full of, full of God perhaps? Actually, that's not quite what I'm asking. Okay. I think more I'm asking is um, where else can we be loving each other and not necessarily need to articulate it in terms of our understanding of God? 
Yeah. I don't know. How like to- one, <laughs> one of the examples that I, that came to mind for me, and I think I a hundred percent agree with you. I mean, one of the things I've wrestled with trying to do fresh expressions of church is this role of clergy who have, who I think has traditionally been taught to hold themselves separate from other people, right? Like you can't do pastoral care unless you set yourself into this separate role that you don't be friends with parishioners. Don't. It's why I'm not friends with Carl. Right. Right. Don't, don't. Now, share. now you know where our, where our antipathy comes from. Sorry. God, Jay. Uh, you know, but don't, don't share personal stuff. Like let people share personal stuff with you, but be careful what personal stories you share with other people. And again and again, what I kept finding with people who were seeking church either again or for the first time is that they didn't want a religious leader who didn't connect on the personal level, right? Like there, it, it didn't work to be in a separate category And so I feel like I've been playing with this role for like several years, but the one that I currently find myself in just to directly answer your question is in our neighborhood and among like mom, like moms and parents of people who have kids around my kids age or not, but mostly and realizing that we have these text groups and, you know, occasionally we're like seeing each other at a distance in the neighborhood or whatever, and the way that we're sharing is, is this like kind of questioning of like, what's happening to us? Where's our heart breaking? Um, what, what is, what, how are we being changed? And even like, we were having this conversation about the like, you know, people are sort of asking questions around about, around about, about like the biblical times we're living through, Right. So there seems to be this bigger question that's underlying all of it. Like, why is all of this bad stuff happening? Um, And space to reflect on how we're living through it together. What are the joys? What are the ridiculous moments? What are the hard, impossible moments that just we don't know what to do with? So I don't know. That's, I feel like that's one of the places like kind of in our neighborhood, but specifically in this sort of smaller group of parents we're sort of family friends. I think there's some kind of community where I have no religious authority. Um, no one's asking me to. And yet there still seems to be this invitation to questions about meaning making together. Well, and I guess I, I thought of, as you were saying that, I thought of two groups. Um, one dies is the poetry group that you and I are in. So Di and I are in this group that once a month we get together and we share poems and that's lovely and, and um, I think deeply fulfilling. And then I'm also in a group of people who write poems. And so we, we come together and do critique, which is also usually pretty lovely and fulfilling. So I, I think those are the two places where that kind of active of meaning making and contemplating the universe in a way that is, not not always religious or you know explicitly religious, but is pretty deep. Mm-hmm. Um, take place in my life without me having to lead. That's the other part too. So that's that's an important part as well. How about you, Di? Though, like, what, so what are the communities where people are showing up? Um, some of it is in family groups, like Jane was talking about. Um, some of it is well, it's sort of all over. We talked early on, I think, about how um, code switching is something that military brats get a lot of practice in. Mm. And I think that that is really useful here and now, and particularly in terms of this particular question. Um, I, when Sam was in my, when my son was in preschool, we picked an international preschool. And so a lot of the families there, um, it's, it's, relevant with years ago when I was um, thinking about exploring discerning ordination, what I was really most drawn to was chaplaincy because, and then when I did CPE, what I found was um, that sometimes pastoral care classes had given less information that was relevant than my undergrad literature major And the reason was that we're listening for themes 
and we're listening for where people are making meaning, mm-hmm. excuse me, making meaning in their stories. Um, and so it's hard to point to specific groups, but it's a practice that just happens all the time. Like what are the metaphors here and what, what's the difference between the presenting problem and the deeper thing that people are actually wrestling with? Like, um, I'm going to put the two of you on the spot just a little bit because I am, and I apologize. You can edit me out. Um, there might be a lot of editing out today. (laughs) Um, there was, I'm bringing up Twitter again. There was a conversation on Twitter about, um, whether or not there is an ontological change in priests when they are ordained. Mm -hmm. Um, and this was part of that bigger discussion about Eucharist, um, because lots of people are weighing in and wrestling with Eucharist right now. Um, but if it's even a debatable question that there might be an ontological change in people when they are ordained as priests, then it seems to me that that means that there are really deep and painful identity questions when priests are not able to perform specific Mm. priestly functions. And so um, during this time, some of us are hearing clergy very, very frustrated with specific technological details. And I don't believe that those are the things that they are frustrated about. (laughs) So um, that is an example of how I'm listening for spiritual pain and hope in communities that I might not be a part of, um, that you all are a part of, but that I'm not a part of. So I'm practicing it here, but I think we're all practicing it everywhere. And it's how we learn and notice God. Um, and I've rambled off a little bit from the subject, except that, um, except that those groups, there, there aren't specific groups for me. There's just who I'm with in the moment, which is all kinds of different people. Well, I, so one of my mentors, Don Rogan, who was uh, an Episcopal priest and a professor at Kenyon, um, both when I was a student there. And then when I went back there to be chaplain, he was retired, but he was still teaching a little bit. Um, He wrote at one point, this kind of, I don't know what you would call it. a, A letter to somebody who was about to become a priest. And then he went on to share it with everyone he knew in similar situations. Um, He called it the priesthood papers. And he said essentially that the role of a priest is to bless, to absolve and to teach, which I've, which I've really liked, you know, and and you will notice nowhere in there, is there any idea that um, Eucharist or, you know, like sacrament, I guess in the blessing, I guess you bless the Eucharist, but, um, but that's certainly not the only way one can bless. And I think the greatest challenge right now is that um, the only part of that trifecta that I feel I have left is uh, the teaching part, um, which I think might be why people are so annoyed with technology, right? Because that's where they go to try and do the one thing they feel they can still do. Um, like blessing, for instance, um, some, some of the priests I know in Amira very clearly said you can't bless people if they're not in the room. They either you need physical proximity to bless. Um, and I think the same may be true of absolution. Um, so. I think that's silly. Have you never felt blessed by someone who wasn't in the room? Well, it's funny. I raised this to my wardens and they, they also thought it was silly. And um, they suggested that I just not do it as a formal blessing, but just at the end of a conversation, be something like, you know, bless you. See you later. You know, <laughs> which I think was wise on their part. I mean, I think that's what John O'Donohue talks about in his book "To Bless the Space Between Us." Yeah, is the question about how do we bless all of the different kinds of spaces, um, and that that's something that's, as you're pointing out, Di, is happening all the time. I don't know. For me. That it was something that I wrestled with when I left parish ministry and started doing pressure expressions is everyone said, you need an altar and a pulpit to be a priest. Like if you don't have those things, like where, where are you going to put your roots down? And I kept kind of pushing against that and saying like, well, can't I have altars and pulpits everywhere? Like, 
what does it mean? That's the whole purpose of this work is to figure out where those places, those preaching stations are and where those sacramental moments are with people in backyards and in parks and in coffee shops and all the things. Right. So I don't think that I have that. It's funny. Your quote, the quote that someone said to me about what a priest was once was, um, Stephen Charleston, who was at the time the dean of Episcopal Divinity School, where I went to seminary, his version of a priest is be the bearer of the uncomfortable. A priest is one who is the bearer of the uncomfortable message, hmm. a steward of the mystery, an organizer of chaos. And he would always add, and yourself. Hmm. Um, like, be yourself. Um and I think for me, that's been helpful because I think the steward of the mystery or sometimes he would say transcendent is the piece about like calling upon God to bring God's holiness into the present moment. Like that could be communion or baptism or any other sacramental work, but it's not limited to just the sacraments, right? Like for me, it's about being the one that says, oh, look, there it is there's the burning bush or there's the moment that God has dropped into our midst. And does everyone see it? Can you all see it? Um, like that for me is the heart of the work, which I don't think is only priestly work, but I think that some of that comes to priests so that we can help other people see it and experience it. Um, yeah, I would say, so I just got off um, our midday prayer where we spend about 10 minutes of the half hour um, people just kind of commenting on and talking about what the scripture is. And I, I feel like there are so many people who are so very good at that role of pointing to the, to the burning bush. Right. And um, I, a lot of the time I'm just kind of silent and absorbing. Maybe I try and summarize something at the end, but really like, I don't feel like I need to do that work. And, and, um, we have been, you know, we're talking about how God shows up to different people in different ways. And we've spent about 10 or so minutes talking about priests, but you know, what about everybody else? Like die, how is God showing up to you as a lady during this time? Well, the, so the reason I brought up priests specifically was that, um, was that I think that this is a time that is forcing you out into the world. The rest of us always occupy and are always forced yeah. to be trying to find meaning in. Um, so so actually, I think um, clearly I have never lived through a global p- pandemic, but there are um, elements, there are strains of what's happening now that don't feel unfamiliar to me. Um, I was 9,000 months pregnant with my son when we moved to Ohio. Um, and for the first couple of years, I was a stay-at-home mom who didn't really know other families. Um, and obviously I could go to stores and stuff. (laughs) Um, but it was really isolating and hard those first few years. Um, and so this is not the same, but it's not utterly foreign either. I have learned ways to live with pieces of that. Um, but people who have been going to an office every day have not. Um, I, I think, you know, this is a, this is a weird time, but I'm thinking a lot about someone. I wish that I could remember who wrote the article or where it was, but somebody said that in trauma and, you know, we've talked a little bit about this being broad corporate trauma. um, We look for things to compare our experience to so that we can figure out how to navigate it. Um, And so I'm really curious about, what echoes of other things people are finding in this. Um, And I think the more normal people's lives have been, the harder that is to find. Um, But, but I'm finding all kinds of God movements in things like, well, I have friends all over the world and I have regularly throughout my life been separated from friends. So it's actually kind of a gift to me to be able to lean on, oh, I know how to do this. And not only do I know how to do this, but I've been the new kid so many times that I can bring the new kids in. And right now the new kids are virtual. They're not at my kitchen table. Um, 
but but God is still moving there. Like some of the big corporate owners are technology owners are still terrible, but that doesn't mean that God can't move in those places. Um, and so there we are. Um, and you know, we've got this little Compline group of a dozen, a couple dozen people, uh, six nights a week and people have become friends who didn't know each other before. And people care about one another's concerns and they have no personal investment or reason to, um, and it's really exciting to me. Um, so I am seeing God in all the ways that love is reaching out these great little pea shoot tendrils and grasping onto new poles. Thank you. I mean, Di, that in some ways had, um, really humbles me and kind of humbles the earlier part of our conversation. We were talking about how creaturely we are and how we need smells and eye humidity and everything else. But, um, cause I, cause you, you just had me thinking about my niece who, um, when she was, uh, in early high school, I think, you know, there's one TV show that she particularly loves and has loved forever. And I was talking to her about her friends and she started naming these people. And I was like, well, who, who are these people? And she's like, well, you know, one's a homemaker in Pasadena. Another is a Swedish fisherman. I'm like, wait a minute, you are friends with Swedish fishermen? You know, and yeah, these were like the people she considered her close personal friends. This was her friend group. I just, I mean, to me, it is bewildering. I still, I don't understand how it works and I probably never will. But, but wait, but you do understand because you love Teresa of Avila and she had that exact same friendship with John of the Cross, right? They're epistolary friendships. It's just a new medium. I guess that's really true. You're right. Huh. Okay, mind blown. <laughs> you know, I've been thinking a lot recently about... Um, died maybe a point of connection that I was a undergrad English major um more useless uh information I think all three of us were actually <laughs> so there we go now we know our deep uh call to friendship and uh pondering the mysteries of life but um my interest was in um the Canterbury Tales and uh I've just been thinking about how we've, like in the Canterbury Tales, we've all been thrown together, this like motley crew of people. And the only thing we have is our stories. Like that's, we, like we're sort of been pulled out of our context to a certain extent. And, and the way in which we're coming to know one another in this time is by sharing these stories of how we're journeying towards this place that we're not even sure we know or what we know to expect of it. Um, so so I don't know. I've just been drawn back to that and the way that the stories get told over time and how they change. And the, the, as you're pointing out the themes that continue to emerge. Um, and I think that's what I'm hearing from people. I think one of the big longings in this moment is to know people deeply, even if we can't physically be together. Um, and like deep, meaningful relationships, you know, I, I think that's the place. So in addition to these parent friends who I think we are growing closer in a different kind of way than we had before, um, you know, I've been taking a online class and just like being able to chat with people in that class and reflect on just how we're holding up and like what's happening and our tell about our spaces and where we're living and finding peace and chaos. I don't know. All of those things seem to be, I don't know, weaving themselves together, but that place where we can like actually talk to one another feels like the most, the thing I most long for. Yeah. I am totally delighted, Jane, by um, Canterbury Tales as the metaphor for this for so many reasons, right? Like, in that is is this like weird pilgrimage. I'm sad now, of course, that Jason is not here with us to talk I about know. Right. and how that's relevant. Um, but but also because the characters, you know, everybody gets their own section, and the characters become more nuanced when we see them in this new setting and this new experience. Um, and there's so much humor in it when you do a slow, close reading, and there's space to do a slow, close reading of the characters 
in this pilgrimage now. That is, that is just a delightful and really fun and great way to look at this. Mm-hmm. Oh, good. Well, yeah, I've been thinking I need to like somehow write about it. So I'm glad to at least like reflect on it with you here. Cause it, the more I thought about it, the more I'm like, Hmm, there are a lot of parallels. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, um, so we've talked a little bit about this, but I wonder if you, we've sort of been talking about our own experience, but one of the questions I was curious about is what are you hearing from other people about like <clears throat> their longing to reach out to the divine in some capacity? Like how are other people experiencing God? Cause I think you're right, Di, that like on some level as priests, we have this filter that we've, lived through or inherited whether it's ontological or not it's a filter we're looking at and so I've been trying to listen into other people that I'm talking to just about what are where where are they experiencing God and I heard a little bit of that as you were saying Carl when you talk with your prayer group um like is it I guess the one of the fundamental questions I have been holding is is it in these online spaces, which maybe is a little, but mostly what I'm hearing from people is it's happening in other places for them. It's happening in nature or it's happening in, um, you know, slowing down enough to like actually play with their children or I don't know, like going on a hike. There just seems to me that like people, as they talk about what's holy to them right now, it doesn't seem to be online gatherings. It seems to be like found, being found in other places, something they're reading or what do you all think? So I'm reading and I'm delight, delighted to shill it for anyone who stands still for a moment. I am reading Rebecca Solnit's A Paradise Made in Hell. And it's terrific. It's about, um, I have probably also tried to sell it on this podcast. Um, I do not get royalties. Um, and it's about how, The common narrative is that in crisis, everybody freaks out and it's every man for himself. But the data supports instead that we actually really try to help each other. Um, And this crisis, I'm thinking about in terms of that, this crisis is really hard because I am hearing people noticing the holy in help and in the desire to help and in the desire to be together and stay connected And there is an external prohibition of that. Um, So I think, I think this cleverly titled podcast of liturgy and longing. (laughs) um, And here we've got illuminated that the Holy is being noticed in abstentia um, in that longing for, you know, I want to help my neighbor who's grieving, but I'm not allowed to hug them. Um, So I think some of the holiness that I'm hearing people talk about noticing is in desire more than fulfillment. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, yeah, that's what I got. That's such a great way to put it. Absolutely. Definitely. Yeah, because I, you know, I get emails from people who are awake at two in the morning and like find some kind of YouTube video or something and then they need to share it because they you know, cause they don't want to feel alone in their appreciation of the thing that gave them solace. Right. And I, I mean, I really think that's it. <laughs> like that's where, that's where God is showing up is to think, how do I keep those threads connected even just a little bit, you know? Um, Have you all noticed that you've gotten more actual physical mail lately? Because I absolutely have. I have gotten oh. cards and letters in the last few weeks, and I haven't in years, and it's beautiful. No, and nice. the absolute joy that people have. We, My kids have sent them out to some friends, and and their friends have sent them to us, uh, you know, done like these porch drop things that we're all doing. And there's something that's just like so full of joy. Um and we have a good friend who's an artist in Brooklyn and she's been painting self portraits of herself with masks on and just sending them to people just as a way of just saying like, here's a memory, like something to preserve of this time. And just a thought I was thinking of you and 
you know, wanting to hold you in, in my thoughts and bring you something. So I totally agree. I think that kind of physical, that, that that's become on some ways, one of the physical ways that we are uh, showing up for one another. I have a friend in Texas who um, actively does not enjoy children and she just ordered the game Battleship so that she can play it virtually with my son. Nice. Um, so it, so I am seeing in so many places and hearing from so many different people, um, not just that desire to help, but a, a willingness to try on new things. And I really think that that's holy. I'm not an iconoclast. Um, someone thought recently that I might be, and I am very much not, but um, I, do want us i don't i don't want to let go of all old things and i certainly don't want to smash old things but i'm so touched and moved by the way people are seeing the people around them and trying to hear how they want to be loved i think that that's a holy thing um and when we're not in person some t- and there's more space for some people not for everyone for some people there's a lot less space right now Um, but when there's more spaciousness and we can slow down and we choose to, I am seeing people try to learn the ways their neighbors want to be loved. That's really nice. I I also am seeing a reconciliation. Like I, one of the stories I'm hearing from different people is about relatives who haven't been in touch for years who now are in touch, um, or just strengthening of relationships. Like I, one of my, uh, friends here has a, you know, she, my friend is in probably her seventies and her mother is in her nineties and, um, they are talking all the time, you know, like she's just talking always about all this wisdom that her mother is like giving to her. And, um, you know, what a, what an amazing thought to think like you can discover, your best relationship with the person after having known them for 70 years Um, in like, you know, in a moment of crisis. Yeah. So what does that ask of the church? Like if, if God is moving in these ways, what, what is it? What is our call? Um, to either help make sense of this experience together with our communities to help kind of shape a a narrative or, or at least name the narrative we see emerging. Um, And, or like, what does, what's, what's, what does online church, like what could it be or do that? And maybe it's not even about being online. Maybe it's just about like, I guess one of the thoughts that I had, and I shared this article from Philip Clayton, which I'm sure most of you haven't gotten a chance to read yet. I highly recommend it though. Did you read it? Um, that I think what he's pointing to is being able to understand the church as the body of Christ beyond a worship service, you know, gathering, like what does it actually mean to be the church? That that's the call. That was always the call of whatever this emerging church was going to be. But we're now in a moment where we're forced to be that, Mm-hmm. Um, which is, I think, interesting to reread the article in light of this. So I don't know. What do you think? What is the church being called to do or be? Honestly, I don't think we're going to know the answer to that question for quite a while. I, but, but one thing I've been thinking about through this whole conversation is um, in the seminary class, when we were talking about the kingdom of heaven, the professor challenged us to come up with contemporary metaphors for the kingdom of heaven. And one of my classmates, Mark Euchter, um, who had been in IT before going to seminary, said the computer, the, the kingdom of heaven is like a computer virus. It comes in and it utterly rewrites your system and everything will seem messy and broken and terrible. <laughs> and then something, something else will emerge from it. And, and, you know, at the time, I, I mean, I've thought about that for years. I thought, oh, that's so clever. And, and now I'm thinking, yeah, but a virus is a virus. Like the virus, this is not a computer virus. This is just a virus, right? But can we say this might be the kingdom of heaven? You know, this might be um, the weird, disruptive, really annoying and sometimes terrible feeling thing that is actually going to rewrite the script and remake the world. And the way that we've all been longing for, we just 
fool ourselves into thinking we can do it without change or risk. Right. We can't. But we can control the way in which it happens. Like, right. That's the whole irony of like change management, right? There is no managing it. Yes. It's just, it's literally, as we've been saying all along, it's just surviving it, right? It's being willing to do the best you can. As you were saying earlier, Di, like that's, that's all any of us can do in the face of this. And there is a sense that there's a sort of, the poem uses the line, a story without structure, but there's a sense that we find ourselves in a story without structure right now. Um, I th- so I think that might point to what our role is. Our role is to keep cool about it, to say, yep, it's a mess. <laughs> <You know? laughs> We're still showing up. We still love the world, right? I am shocked to report that we are all on the same page. Um, because, <laughs> because my thought is the role of the church right now is to resist the desire to overfunction. Yeah. Um, and to just watch, to, to love in every opportunity we see and to resist the desire to overfunction. Yeah. Another, another friend keeps saying, you know, God has given me a clear understanding that I do not have to save the world right now. (laughs) Like you're very right. When I worked in the hospital, I used to say all the time. um, And I felt like this was so useful that I felt specifically called to not fix. Uh Uh-huh. That's yep. And my mantra has always been, it's not my job to save the church, but I think just recognizing that like, yeah, that's, that's, that's actually up to God. Yep. This is God's work and we're here to sort of help in the ways we can love in the ways we can. Um, But yeah, I think sometimes we want to say like, we're going to do all the things we used to do and now all these new things and this and the more I think about that, the more I like get on the verge of a panic attack. Like there, there is no way that that is possible. Um, so maybe it's enough. It's enough to show up and listen to people and proclaim the gospel once a week. Um, maybe it's enough to just make some phone calls and check in on people and send some cards. Um, it's enough to acknowledge that this is hard and we don't have all the answers. Yeah. Well, thank you, my friends, and thank you to our audience for joining us for this episode of Liturgy and Lawning. Our theme music is by Brianna Kelly, and you can find more of her music at Bandcamp. We'll be back next week when our topic will be ancient spiritual practices. Hope to see you then. Uh, I have